Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Today's text is going to be coming out of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 3 to 6. We're really going to look at one phrase here, and I'm going to kind of be expanding upon it. This was, of course, our text last week as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6. As always, you can follow along on the screen uh, with all the verses that we'll be doing. Today's text is also on the handout, but there will be a lot of different texts that we're going to be going through today. So you can, you can look along on the screen or follow along in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Beginning at verse 3, hear now the word of our sovereign God. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Today we're going to be looking at what I would call the tactics of spiritual warfare. If you remember a few weeks ago I talked about strategy versus tactics. And the the big picture, strategy, I kind of defined, I'll put it up here, Our strategy in spiritual warfare is to draw near to God, to be alert for the attacks of Satan, and to stand against, resist, uh, and attack his works. That's the big picture. What we're wanting to do, what, what should be happening in spiritual warfare is first and foremost, we're drawing near to God. That's the God's ultimate purpose in spiritual warfare. And secondly, that we're, we're alert for Satan's attacks and we're resisting those attacks and then counterattacking back against him. That's the big strategy. Okay, that's the goal. And, and the key phrase there was to stand or to resist. In Ephesians 6, it's stand. In sections like James chapter 4 uh, and 1 Peter chapter 5, it says to resist. But that, that's what strategy is. Now, we discussed the fact that the battleground of spiritual warfare then is what the scripture refers to as strongholds, which are entrenched habits of thought and emotions, speech, and actions that Satan uses to keep us from experiencing freedom in Christ. It's it's entrenched habits and patterns that start all the way down deep inside of our soul and our thought life and our attitudes, and they They bleed out into the way we feel about things and the way we speak about things and then ultimately the way we act regarding things. And so strongholds run through every part of our being. They affect every part of who we are and how we act. And so, and and again, this key word there about them being entrenched. If you think of a stronghold or a citadel, uh, how hard it is to break into one This gives us the idea when the scripture refers to strongholds of what we're dealing with. And so the question we want to answer today is, okay, let's get down to the tactics. How do we actually work 
to resist the building up of strongholds in myself. Because Satan is constantly trying to build these strongholds in you and in me. He's trying to build them in your family and in mine. He's trying to build them in this church and in other churches. He tries to build them in a nation. Okay, It goes at every area from individual to the largest group. He's trying to build these strongholds. How do we resist them? And then when we discover strongholds that have already been built, because as I said last week, many strongholds actually trace all the way back to when we were children. Okay? They may even be multi-generational in our family. So those strongholds were being established before we were even conscious of the fact. Well, once we discover that, how do we actually go about laying siege, attacking, and tearing down such a stronghold? Well, the way that we would do that is through the weapons that God has given us. And this is, again, where our text is. Notice Paul here in the text, speaking of stronghold, says that we live in the world, but we don't wage war the way the world does. This is not about a, an actual physical military battle, which, remember, is only the shadow. It's only the metaphor that is built on the deeper prior reality of spiritual warfare. Paul says we don't do it the way they do. No, on the contrary, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So Paul says there are these spiritual strongholds, and we have spiritual weapons. You can't take an actual sword. You can't take a gun or a piece of artillery or a stealth fighter and attack a spiritual stronghold. It does not work that way. There have to be weapons that will work against it. So we're going to talk about this today. Now let me Say something as we begin. Unless we all want to stay here through next Sunday, I am not going to cover every weapon. So you may at the end of this say, but I liked weapon X. So I'm going ahead and telling you right now, I cannot cover them all. There is no way, but that's okay because the, the U.S. military, for example, has so many different weapons, but when you are an infantry guy or a Marine going into battle, you don't know every weapon, but you know a few. You know the main ones that you go into battle with. And then specialists use other weapons. We're going to talk about the main weapons that God gives us that every Christian can lay hold of and can go into battle. So what are the weapons of our spiritual warfare? First, most important, is the Word of God. The Word of God is the basic, essential Weapon. If you remember in our text in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, which we spent several weeks in Ephesians 6, Paul concludes talking about the armor, and he only gives one piece of offensive weaponry, and that comes at the end of verse 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So Paul tells us specifically what the sword of the Spirit is, and over and over and over again, I mentioned that different things are called the breastplate, and different things are called the helmet in Scripture, but one thing that's consistent is the sword is almost always referred to as the Word of God. And the Word of God is very often referred to as a sword. Another text that does this, for example, is Hebrews 4.12, where we're told the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It goes on in verse 13 to say that nothing's hidden from God. God sees through to the strongholds in you and me, and the Word of God is what he's going to use to address those. So when we see that this is a weapon here, it should also draw to mind, if we remember, one of the great pictures of spiritual warfare in Scripture occurs in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, where Jesus is in the wilderness, and Satan comes up, and the ultimate cosmic conflict 
happens right before our eyes as we watch Satan and Jesus in spiritual battle. And what is the weapon Jesus turns to every single time in that? The Word of God. It is written. Satan says something, Jesus says, it is written. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and take it. Jesus is the only undefeated spiritual warrior in history. Nobody else even comes close. None of us even have a good batting average. So it would behoove us to learn from him. How did he do it? Word of God. Word of God. Very simple, most important weapon. Jesus over and over again said, it is written. And I might point out, he didn't say, can you hold that thought while I dig around and find the scroll on which it is written? How did Jesus know that out in the middle of the wilderness? Because the word of God, when you cut Jesus, the word, the word came out of him. And no, this is not, well, God gave him a little gift because he is God in the flesh. How did Jesus memorize those scriptures? Same way you and I do. He took time and memorized them. Okay? He used the scripture. And so, Scripture is the most important weapon, for it identifies the strongholds in us. It is the main battle weapon we use against those strongholds. And in fact, it instructs, informs, and fuels every other weapon we're going to talk about. So, Scripture is the most important weapon. Again, it is the one that identifies the strongholds. You don't even know how to use the other weapons. What stronghold are you using against? Well, the Scripture is going to identify those strongholds. And then it's going to be the main thing that's used against the stronghold. And then even when we turn to other weapons, the other weapons are informed, they are instructed, and they are fueled by Scripture. The Spirit uses Scripture. Notice the text in Hebrews 4.12. Okay, the, the, it's the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6. That's because these are not, none of these things I'm talking about are separate from our relationship from God. The first part of spiritual warfare is draw near to God. This is not about learning a philosophy. It's not about getting a checklist. It's not about something. It is about our relationship with God. The Holy Spirit must be drawn upon. But the tool he uses, the sword of the Spirit, is what? The Word of God. When the Spirit wants to penetrate down into you to divide the deepest parts of your being, the soul and spirit from the joints and marrow, the, the spiritual immaterial part of you from the bodily part of you, and he wants to get down to the core of who you are and what's going on, what does he use according to Hebrews chapter 4? It's the Word of God. That's what he uses to do it. The Holy Spirit works and does that. The Spirit then uses the Word we're going to see to renew our minds and to change us and to shift who we are. And even if we turn to another aspect like prayer, where do we learn how to pray? Scripture. You want to know the best thing you can do is pray Scripture. I've told you all many times, when I wake up tomorrow morning, what am, how am I going to begin my quiet time? What do I begin my prayer time with? Praying a psalm. Okay, that's what I'm going to be doing tomorrow morning. I'm going to spend time praying through a psalm and then letting that guide my prayer. Because, see, what I think about prayer and how I want to pray may be good or not. But I know this, when I open up and I pray that psalm tomorrow morning, God likes that prayer. Because he, he picked it. He picked 150 of them. Stuck them in scripture. They're true. They are spirit-inspired. They are God-ordained. They are according to the will of 
God. And so I let the scripture inform even my praying. And it's the same thing with every other thing we do. Every other weapon we have is informed and it is fueled by scripture. There's nothing like praying the word of God. So it does that. The same thing is true of worship, fellowship, fasting, every other tool we could talk about, every other weapon we could talk about. It is the scripture that informs and fuels them. Now, as we talk about doing this, let me be very clear. To speak of Scripture as a weapon in spiritual warfare, we're not talking about randomly or quickly reading Scripture, but rather specifically meditating, memorizing, and quoting God's Word relative to the battle that we are in. If you are in a struggle, if I am in a struggle, and there's a particular stronghold, me reading my 3.25 chapters it takes to get through the Scripture in a year is not going to be helpful in spiritual warfare. It's just not. I'm not telling you don't read through the Bible in a year, but I'm telling you that's not going to help you in spiritual warfare. You have to very specifically, these strongholds are so deep. We need the Word of God that is specifically meditated, memorized, and quoted. And every part of that, to meditate means to turn it over, to think about it. It literally meant to mutter it to yourself, to go over and over and over again. Just continuing to dwell upon that scripture until it sinks deep in you. Memorizing it, that's exactly what Jesus had done. You can laugh and it's kind of like a joke, but you know the scripture back then was on massive scrolls. He didn't have disciples with him toting this box of scrolls around. If he didn't have it in his mind, it wasn't there. But he was prepared for battle ahead of time by memorizing the word of God. And he didn't just do it internally, he quoted it. In the ancient world, you didn't even read inside your mind. You read out loud. There is a power in speaking the word of God. And when you do it, Martin Luther used to argue out loud with the devil in his spiritual warfare all the time. And I've had people say, well, I think he's crazy. I say, well, I think God used him to start a reformation. So, you know, obviously God didn't think he was that crazy. Talk, speak, quote the word of God. Now, why this is important, and when I say it's specific, a couple years ago I read a great book uh, by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, and it's called Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. And what he was getting at in that book, the reason he used blink is, you know, you say in the blink of an eye. What Gladwell went through is he showed all of these studies that showed a huge portion of your behavior and mine is driven by our subconscious thought. We're not even aware of why we're acting the way we're acting. It again is a spiritual stronghold is what he's talking about. He went through and used multiple examples. One of the examples, which is very applicable given what happened in Charlottesville yesterday, was dealing with racism. There were a whole group of car salesmen in Chicago. And car salesmen had known in Chicago that there was what they called knockdown sales, sales where you can make easy money, where you can rip somebody off. And what they said was, what subconsciously the car salesmen believe, if I pick four people to walk in, if I just pick Marty and Mary, and if I pick Cindy Bell and Kelby, the order that they would go in is Marty's going to get the best price, Mary's going to get the second best, Cindy's going to get the third best, and Kelby's a sucker. Because black men are suckers. Now what they did in the test is, we send Kelby in with the story saying, I have a degree in advanced finance from Harvard. And I work at the International Bank down here 
in their finance and loan department. I know money. So they're telling the guys not a knockdown sale. Guess what they discovered? They still tried to rip Kelby off. And after two hours of negotiating, Kelby was still not at the price that was offered to Marty the second he walked in the door. And this wasn't one guy, it was hundreds and hundreds of them. Why are they behaving that way? Are they all outwardly, is there just an unusual concentration of racists in the car salesman industry in Chicago? What's driving them is deep subconscious thought patterns. And it doesn't matter that every piece of evidence tells them it doesn't apply. They're still being driven by their subconscious behavior. I brought up a few weeks ago the issue of racism in the, the Southern culture I grew up in. That is so deep. I have so many friends who have said and done wildly racist things and then looked at me and said, I'm not a racist. What do you mean you're not? What you just did was racist. I, I don't think racist thoughts. But see, that's because they don't realize it because it's being driven by their subconscious. And this is the problem that you and I have is the majority of how you behave tomorrow and I behave tomorrow is driven by things that are so deep inside of you and so deep inside of me, we don't even realize what's driving us. Why do I react in fear? Why do I react in anger at this? Why do I feel a need to control this situation? The answer is not something surface. It is something deep, deep down. Now, because of that, in spiritual warfare, it's not about just reading a Bible verse. It is, we have to meditate upon God's word until it begins to change our subconscious thought. Till it is sinking way, way deep down in the way we think, tearing down strongholds of wrong thought and building strongholds of godly thought, proper emotions, words, and actions. Now, think about it. How does the scripture tell us this? In an actual place where the the shadow of human warfare was being done, God speaks to Joshua, Joshua 1.8, and he says this. As Joshua's getting ready to lead Israel into battle, he says this. Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Quickly read a couple of chapters a day, and everything you want will be yours. Is that what he says? What are we told to do? Meditate upon it. How long do we meditate upon it? day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, then you're going to be prosperous and successful. Joshua, if you want to walk in the right way, you have to meditate upon this day or night, because Joshua, what's driving you is not surface. What's driving you is so deep inside who you are, if you don't meditate on this day and night, it will never touch that thing. It'll never sink down to that thing, which is why we're told over and over. You can look at Psalm uh, 1, which is a guide to the entire book of Psalms. tells us you've got to be like a tree planted by a stream of water. You've got to meditate on God's law day and night. Then you'll be that tree by the streams of water, and you'll bear fruit in season. Jeremiah chapter 17 says the same thing to us. We have to meditate on God's word, and we have to actually even speak it out loud to ourselves. We need to be able to quote it to ourselves when that thing is going on. 
and that fear is being touched or that, that racist attitude or action is coming out or I'm trying to control a situation, I'm trying to slide back into an old habit pattern, we have got to say, okay, what I am meditating upon, I'm going to speak this out loud to myself, I'm going to remind myself I'm not giving into that fear, I'm not giving into that attitude, I'm not going to be defined by the way I was before. It is a hand-to-hand, everyday, moment-by-moment combat using the Word of God. Now, I can't stress this enough. When I, was, when I was a young Marine, one of the things that we did over and over and over again, and I know my dad was a Marine in the 50s and said it was the same thing, they would march 15 miles out into the desert and then make the guys start taking their, their guns apart. Now, he had a different one. I had an M16, but they would make them take it apart. They would sometimes even want to blindfold you or they would throw a whole bunch of pieces together and mix them together. Why are they doing that? Because in battle, your life depends upon knowing that weapon. And so you have to know it. We would get sick of taking the thing apart and putting it together. I know how to take it apart and put it together. I can do this. We do all these speed tests. We do this. And their point was you can never know it well enough because it is the difference between life and death. Well, friend, there's a much greater life and death struggle. And it's the spiritual warfare of which we are a part. You can never know the word of God well enough. I've been meditating memorizing, laboring for 40 years, and tomorrow morning I will wake up and be shocked by something I didn't realize. And something will penetrate another level deeper into my soul than it ever has before. So if you know of a stronghold that you are struggling with, you need to study what the Word of God says about it. And then you need to not only study it, you need to meditate on those verses. Write them out. And think about them when you have free brain cycles. When you wake up, when you're walking along the road, whatever you're doing. Remember the Shema, you know, the, the command you're to talk about when you sit at home, walk along the road, lie down, get up, all of those places. Same teaching. We do that over and over again. We memorize them so that it is constantly with us and then it starts to shape our subconscious thought. So when something happens, instead of immediately responding the old way, we start acting a different way. There is no substitute for the word of God. A number one weapon. Secondly, prayer. Paul in Ephesians 6, at the end of the list of armor, says this in verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Notice there's that word of spiritual warfare. And keep on praying for all the saints. Prayer is the direct engagement of the enemy in spiritual warfare. As we are being guided by the Holy Spirit to apply God's word, the scripture, to spiritual strongholds. Prayer is where, as I've been studying and meditating and memorizing, and this thing is happening in me or it's happening in another, I start engaging directly, talking to God and letting God work and apply the Scripture to the particular area. As I pray through it, as I talk with God about it, as I even quote the Scripture out like Jesus did to the enemy in Matthew chapter 4. And again, just like with the Scripture, this is not random sleepy prayer. This is not a wish list of things that I want. That's not what we're talking about here. This is wartime prayer in the Holy Spirit. Now, please listen to me on this point. Prayer lists are good. I use one. I have an app that actually keeps up so it rotates y'all's names through, okay? And I pray through that. I spend time doing that. They are good. But 
we have to allow the Spirit to also guide us for whom we pray, what we pray, and even how we pray. Notice there Paul says, pray in the Spirit. It was the, the Word is the sword of the Spirit. This is not about a checklist. This is about relating to God. It's drawing close to God, letting the Spirit work and guide us. And notice Paul specifically says there, well, what does he mean by this spiritual prayer? Is, that, is he talking about praying in tongues? The answer is yes. Is he talking about things other than praying in tongues? The answer is yes. And how do we know that? Because Paul says pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. It's not either or, it is both and and then some more. On all occasions, all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So I again encourage you, pray the scripture. Tomorrow when I pray a psalm, it will then guide what I pray for various people in the congregation. Many of them, by the way, are very much warfare psalms. Oh God, my enemies are coming against me. They are besieging me. Lord, I need you to see and to deliver your servant. What a great prayer to pray for yourself or somebody else that is going through spiritual warfare. It includes using a prayer list. I do that many days, but there are some days I just set the prayer list aside. Largely during Lent, during our seven weeks of prayer this year, I just set the prayer list aside and just said, I'm feeling called by the Holy Spirit to pray for specific people in specific situations, and I'm going to spend extra time in doing that. It also does include, and this may surprise some of you, but I pray in tongues, which means I don't know what I'm praying. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, and it is part of Spirit-led and Spirit-inspired prayer. Uh, it's, it's an important part of spiritual warfare. It also includes intense times of prayer for specific strongholds we're wanting to see demolished. And Related to that, it can include times of fasting and prayer. You remember when the disciples couldn't cast out a demon, what did Jesus tell them? This kind comes out only with, think that might have any relationship to spiritual warfare? So that's why we set aside times and we say, I'm going to fast, not just so that I can lose a couple of pounds today, but no, I am fasting and praying regarding a specific situation. God, I am trying to take the word I've been meditating and memorizing and doing that, and I am applying it in prayer time, and I am asking you, tear down this stronghold in me or in this person I love, and I am giving devoted time and prayer to that. Now, when I describe this, the funny thing is, when you say prayer or prayer meeting to most people, the words that leap to mind are not exciting, engaging, but rather boring. Well, there's a reason why we find prayer boring. And it has nothing to do with prayer. It has rather to do with us. John Piper captures this in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, which is about missions. And I've quoted this before, but listen to what Piper says. I think it captures the idea. Life is war. That's not all it is. But it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. You hear what Piper's saying? This thing was meant 
to be a walkie-talkie, and bombs are exploding around you everywhere, you don't find that a useless piece of gear when you are calling in for life support. But if you're sitting in the den and I want another bowl of nachos and cheese, not such a big deal. If you find prayer boring, friends, I want to encourage you, the problem is not prayer. It is probably you're not realizing you're in a life and death struggle. You have an enemy who wants to destroy you. And the hand-to-hand -hand combat you're going to do with him is scripture-soaked prayer. And if we're not going to engage him, we're going to lose. How, how are we going to tear down? Uh, again, you know, I didn't plan it this way, but what went on in Charlottesville yesterday? We've been struggling with racism for 400 years in this country. How are we going to tear that down? If you think electing the right politician is going to do it, you are naive beyond belief. It's not going to happen. We need believers rising up and crying out and saying, I can't believe we are still struggling with this 400 years in. This stronghold is so deep, and it will not be brought down but by fasting and prayer. There is no other way to do that. And there are, there are strongholds in your life and in mine that we look back and we say, you know what, this is not mom or dad's fault, but they had the same trait, and I believe they've said grandmom and granddad had the same. Man, this is being passed down. I don't want this. I want this to stop now. If we approach life that way, prayer will not be boring. You will not lack things to pray for, nor will I. Friend, we are part of cosmic spiritual warfare, and we draw near to God and resist the enemy in scripture-filled, spirit-directed prayer. And the more we become aware of the cosmic warfare raging all around us, the easier we will find it to pray. Most of you know 2017 has been a tough year. There's been a lot of spiritual warfare around. I've been, I have not had a hard time this year praying. It's been very easy to want to pray. If nothing else, dear Jesus, where are you? Help us prayers. Okay, and I dare say, you know, David, when he was cushy in the palace and things were going well and he's walking on his roof and he sees Bathsheba, does not seem to be spending a lot of time in prayer. David in the stronghold when Saul's trying to kill him, a lot of psalms got written then. A lot of psalms got written then. Uh, and personally, I would rather keep praying when not in the stronghold <laughs> than have to be pushed into it by circumstances. But God wants us to draw near to him, friends. It's a separate point, but he will do what is necessary for you and I to draw near to him. Let, let's do that willingly, and I'll, you can meditate on that. Third, third weapon, praise, thanksgiving, and worship. Psalm 149, which we started our, our night of prayer a few weeks ago, and I want to encourage, it's one of the good signs. I was greatly encouraged by the number of folks that came out in the intensity with which we prayed when we had our night of praise and prayer a few weeks ago. Because as a shepherd, I want to tell you it was encouraging to me that people are understanding spiritual warfare and they're serious about this. Okay, And we started it with reading this text. I'm just going to read the beginning and end of the psalm. <clears throat> but it reads, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. 
his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker and let the people of Zion be glad in their king. So notice it's beginning with praise, thanksgiving, singing worship to God. In verse 5, he moves on and says, Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy in their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. Praise the Lord. Now again, this psalm uses human warfare, which is only the metaphor. In Christ, we of course know that we're no longer about going out and conquering a nation for Jesus. That, that's not part of our call. Ours is a spiritual war. We're specifically told we don't wage those other kinds of wars anymore. But then do we have enemies that need to be bound? Absolutely. And according to this psalm, how do we do it? Praise and worship and the sword in our hands, which again is going to be the spirit, I mean the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, because they, even that's got to fill our praise and thanksgiving and worship. But they are powerful weapons in spiritual warfare, binding the enemy in his work. Praise and worship verbally expressed. Please underline those words. Verbally expressed. Is it enough that I say, well, I thank God in my heart? No. No. What's going without saying needs to be said. Praise and worship verbally expressed binds the enemy and strengthens the work of God's Spirit, for it expresses our trust in the supremacy of God. There's nothing that binds the enemy's work in your life and mine when in the midst of raging conflict, when it appears that the promises of God are not true, that I sing those promises, and I speak those promises out loud, and I say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Come what may, no matter what happens. We are counted as sheep to the slaughter. But even though I die, no, O king, I will not bow to your idol. There is power to bind the enemies of God if we speak praise and worship and we do it verbally, if we speak it out loud. Because, friend, you know why we oftentimes don't want to speak it verbally? Because I'm afraid if I say it out loud, see, now God's on the hook. And I might look like a fool if he doesn't come through. I know y'all probably never struggle with stuff like that, but I do. I, I worry that once I've spoken it out loud and spoken it to somebody else, well, what if it doesn't come true? See, we need to speak it out loud and we need to stand on the word of God and say it is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. I believe the word of God. I speak the word of God. I stand on the word of God. I'm speaking praise to God, even though right now life seems like utter chaos. Even though the enemy is standing there telling me, see, none of God's promises are true. None of this is true. I continue to speak God's word and praise. I want to urge and encourage you, spend time each day singing and praying praise and worship to God and giving him thanks for all he's done for you. Another reason I love praying the Psalms, because they're also full of praise. They are full of me being able just to pray that out, and sing that out, and offer it to God. It's not a once in a while thing. This is also why corporate praise and worship, including what we do up front in song, is not optional. 
but it is a critical component of spiritual warfare. And that's going to lead me to my fourth one in just a minute. But I want to encourage you. If you are in spiritual warfare, and how many people are in spiritual warfare? You need to be here before the first note rises on Sunday morning. It's not all we're doing. But every Sunday is spiritual warfare. And it's spiritual warfare in your life, and it's spiritual warfare in mine. Are there strongholds in Anne Arundel County? Statistics say this county, not Saudi Arabia, not the heart of the Muslim world, this county, 85% of the people in this county will not darken the door of a church today, nor next Sunday, nor the Sunday after. And our little programs are not going to change that. But us gathering as the people of God, speaking praise to Him, singing praise to Him, crying out in prayer to Him, opening the Word of God together, hearing the Holy Spirit work and speak, that might change that data. That might change that figure. But if we want to Wander in whatever, and I make it when I can, and when I can't, you know, but it was a nice day today, and I needed to do some yard work. What that belays, goes exactly back to prayer. What that tells me is, then what I'm recognizing is, I don't really think life is warfare. Because if you're on the front lines in World War II, you're not goofing off. And friends, we're on the front lines. And I can tell you when you'll be off the front lines when you wake up in glory and you're looking at him face to face. <laughs> then you can say, oh, it's over. Until then, we're the church militant. We're the church militant. Now that leads to the last area. Corporate life in a local church. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12 says this. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. And solitary spiritual warfare is not difficult, it's impossible. Or I told you, the, the Roman armor on, on which the analogy is built in Ephesians 6 only works in a unit. It doesn't work in solitary warfare. The whole thing was built that all the shields were going to be interlocking and we were all going to be back to back defending one another. It's the only way spiritual warfare works. So, the prayer there, and notice at the end, as Paul goes through, it's not even just that that's the way the armor works. At the end, he says, I want you to be praying in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers requesting. With this in mind, be alert and keep praying for all the saints. I'm praying for you and you're praying for me. That's how spiritual warfare works. Our personal spiritual warfare is strengthened and made more effective as we gather with other believers for worship in the Word, prayer, praise, fellowship, and table. That's how it is strengthened. That is how we are built up. And 
what betrays where we are as an American church is how lightly we take the gathering of believers. And we do. We take it very lightly. We think of it as an optional extra when it's not. It is not an optional extra. To simply skip a gathering of a local church is to lay down our weapons in the midst of the field of battle and basically say, Satan, here I am, come build whatever stronghold you want. And friend, that's a prayer that will be answered. And if you don't like that, then I have a piece of advice. Gather with God's people. If you're not out of town and you're not sick, be there. And as a disclaimer here, I will go ahead and note, or, or as a, a statement, I don't get paid anything extra whether your backside is warming a seat on Sunday morning or not. This isn't about me. It's about you. As a shepherd, my heart breaks when I know, because see, here's what happens. Warfare breaks out, and one of the first things we do is we withdraw from God's people. I've been walking with Jesus for 40 years, and I've seen this over and over and over again. And it's the worst thing we can do. It's at that very moment. The lion roars, and we run out of the herd. And who's the lion going after? It's the last. Man, when the lion roars, you need to run into the herd. You need to get in the middle of it and say, I need to be deep in the citadel. I need to, be, I need to have people all around me. But friends, that is not what we do. So often we run the other way. So I encourage you. You want to do spiritual warfare? Arrive early. Join in every second of corporate worship. I mean from opening word where we're reading the scripture and to the benediction. And you are reaching out and grabbing the blessing of God by faith and saying, I need this because I'm walking out into spiritual warfare. And the goal, again, is not, may I remind you, it's not even just, I need it to just survive this week. That, we're on mission, friends. There's darkness all around us. We're not here huddling in. We are getting equipped to go out and penetrate darkness. That's the goal. Not just huddling and keeping our own. We want to penetrate the darkness around us. To do that, we need to gather together. Now, let me briefly, and then we're going to come to the table, give you a, a quick kind of case study, I'll call it, for breaking the stronghold of anger. I'm going to expose my own sin. I'm going to expose my own stronghold that I have wrestled with for as long as I can remember from before I was a Christian. And that was anger. And I've told this to people before and they laugh because they've never seen it. You haven't seen that in me. If you were my family, you would not laugh because it could be expressed in bursts of rage that are just simply embarrassing. Okay, and I remember this from before I was even a believer. I remember expressing rage on a tennis court one time, playing tennis with my father, and he was so disappointed, he just walked off the court and just said, if you're going to behave that way in public, I'm not going to stand here and condone that behavior. Okay, I wasn't even a believer at the time. It was deep. The first time Linda, I had told Linda, 
And she did what many of you do. Oh, yeah, I understand. And then she observed it in the car and the look of shock and fear on her face. And it wasn't directed at her. It was directed at the... Uh, what? Right. She never feared me, but the city planners of Washington, D.C. might have at that moment because I was uttering words of rage about what I would do if I could get a hold of one of them for all the stupid one-way streets that had kept me from getting back, and it was this dumb thing. But Linda saw it that morning. It was often expressed towards our children for misbehavior, okay? Uh, and it was a real stronghold. So how did I deal with it? I wish I could tell you I came forward in a meeting and somebody laid hands and prayed and it was done with. And there's a lot of silly people that will tell you that. That's just not how we, I, I did go forward and get prayed for. I did beg and plead with God. But that's not what brought it down. And I will tell you, it's still a struggle, but, and you can ask my wife, I am a thousand times better than I was when we got married. So how did it work? Well, as I said, I studied, I meditated, and I memorized verses on anger and words. I can quote a whole bunch of verses on anger and words. Because I said, I got a problem, Jesus, and I need your word to penetrate down what is going on inside me that causes, in other areas, I'm acting like a godly man, and then here I'm not. What is prompting that? What is causing that? I spent real time in prayer specifically over this. Yes, confessing my sin, crying out for help, and asking God, What's, what's the root cause? What's going on? Under the, I know this is not a good idea. I know it's not a good idea when we're in Washington, D.C., and I don't like the way a guy treats Linda, and I'm out of the car threatening a guy in the traffic in downtown D.C., threatening to pull him out of the car. Not a good idea. I know that. Why am I doing that? Why in the moment does that seem like a reasonable course of behavior? I fasted. I oftentimes use fasting. I can remember when I would blow up at my children, my anger would get expressed. And I, I want to be clear, I never, I never hit my children. I never physically abused them. I never did any of that. But I would raise my voice in ways that were inappropriate to my children. Well, when I did that, I oftentimes, I would confess my sin to them, and then I would tell them, Daddy's going to be fasting now for the next period of time because I am asking Jesus to show me what is going on here, and I am asking him to break this thing. And I spent periods of time in fasting asking God to do it. The battle was long. And this was the 30 years war. It was long, but gradually, bit by bit, I saw God working, revealing, and helping me. I asked the Holy Spirit to reveal things to me. And I remember with one of my children, I discovered that when that child would not listen to what I said, because I started discovering the, the underlying things was, you know, there was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. We just want things to be peaceful. Well, I had the Pax breath. I just wanted peace. And peace is when I tell you to do something, do it. That's how we have peace in the house. And so when my kids would respond in a way I didn't like, or especially if they responded to Linda in a way I didn't like, I noticed I was up out of my chair, I'm a rather large guy, so I was over them 
towering over them physically and using superior verbal skills to beat them down. And so the Holy Spirit started revealing to me that I was doing that. And so I started saying, okay, Jesus, then I need you to remind me, Holy Spirit, when that thing goes off, I need you to tell me, stay seated. I need you to remind me, don't raise your voice. Now, the comical thing was I had a child who got very upset because they thought that was me expressing I didn't love or care for them anymore. They at least knew I cared about the situation when I would blow up. Uh, shows how sad it was that that had become a pattern. But the Holy Spirit revealed something because we're not Gnostic. That thing, if I got out of the chair, it was over. Battle done. That was not something I figured on my own. I didn't read it in a book. That was just the Holy Spirit showing me these are trigger things for you. And you need to realize that and understand. And he, he showed me a lot of mine was underlying issues of control. And there were issues of legalism in my parenting. And I had to repent. Those were deep-seated things and fears. And the Holy Spirit had to work on those because I couldn't change my external behavior until underlying issues of legalism and control were being addressed and worked in me. And so I asked the Spirit to remind me and do it. And I want to tell you, again, after... 40 years of being a believer, I have seen major, major improvement in this area. And it's not by self-help. It's by real day-after-day -day spiritual warfare. I've told you all hand-to-hand -hand combat. What I just described to you is almost 40 years of hand-to-hand -hand combat. And I am, you know, as a granddad, some of this maybe I'm lacking energy, but things that would have created problems before, I'm like, oh, come here. Pop will give you a cookie. I'm, I'm not going to holler about that. I'm not going to get upset about that. That is because I don't want to rebuild in you strongholds that I did, and some of which I built right into my own children. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be there. And so there has been a major change. And I want to encourage you, God can work in you the same way. So as you're doing this, and again, the point is drawing near to God. I can't stress that enough. This is not about how can I just deal with this separate from Jesus. What Jesus is working in your spiritual stronghold, in mine, in the ones in this church, in this area, is to draw us near to him. That's his goal. Satan's got his other goal, how he's wanting to destroy us. But Jesus wants to draw you close to him. And that's what we need. Now what we're going to do, we're not going to apply the word because I've given you plenty. This is kind of an application teaching. We've covered this a lot in the last several weeks. What we're actually going to do is we're just going to come to the Lord's table. And Ryan's going to come down and lead us. What I want to encourage you to do today, as he's coming down here, this is the table of deliverance. This is another weapon in our arsenal that rather than talking about, we're going to do. But to do that, don't approach this as a religious ritual. As Ryan leads us here to the table, I want to encourage you Ask the Holy Spirit, what strongholds are there? What's going on? And I am asking you for me, Holy Spirit, meet me. Holy Spirit, feed me. Holy Spirit, use this to break down the strongholds in my life. And so we're going to come to the table. We're going to receive God's grace fresh and new. And then we're going to go out to continue.
So Ryan. Thanks, Brett. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we are thankful for who you are and the grace you have provided us. I pray as we come to your table today that you help us examine ourselves and remind us where we currently stand. I pray that you help remind us that we are broken and need you. I pray that you remind us that despite all our mistakes and brokenness, you still love us and provide us a means for salvation only through Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for this and the grace you continue always to pour out on us. Amen. I'd like to remind us that as we get the elements, to please just hold on to them and take them, and we'll take them together in a few minutes. Lord, as we take the bread this morning, let us confess our sins to you. Let us remember we are broken and unable to follow your word alone. We have displeased you, Lord, and deserve death. We have been sinning since the Garden of Eden, and even your most faithful servants, Abraham, Moses, and David, have all fallen short and were unable to do anything in their own power. We deserve death, Lord, but instead you provided us refuge through Jesus Christ. Daily we are tempted and tried. A war is waging and we are powerless on our own. We confess our inadequacies and bring them to the cross. Jesus, you were crucified for our sins, the ones we confess today. Jesus, let us remember this bread represents your body, that it was broken for us. Your body allows us to confess our sins and turn towards Jesus and commune in your table. Take and eat. Lord, as we drink this cup, I ask that you remind us that this cup is the new covenant where through Jesus' blood we have been forgiven. We've been cleansed from the wrath we so justly deserve for our sin. I ask that as we drink this cup, the sins we confessed to you earlier are not just forgiven, but the desire and motivation to return to those ways, those strongholds, are destroyed and we are purified. Take captive every thought, Lord, so that we may be obedient to you. I ask that we drink this cup. The power of sin on us is destroyed and we are made righteous in your light. We are sanctified in your ways, Lord. Take and drink. As we leave here today, Lord, we pray that coming to your table was not just a moment of remembrance. We pray that instead we leave here filled with the Holy Spirit and 
armed for battle. We know that the war we wage is, not, is in the spiritual realm and that the victory is in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I pray that as we go into battle tomorrow, we are empowered because of you. God, I pray that we see the righteous path that you want us to take. We see the path where sin is defeated in our lives. We see the path that we are walking along with you because it is only through you that we are able to defeat evil and our sinful nature. Although we are in this world, we acknowledge that we are not of this world. We do not wage war like the world wages war. Give us the strength to read and meditate in the word and pray daily in order to strengthen our inner being. Thank you for allowing us to share in your victory. In Jesus Christ, amen. As we stand together, uh, we're going to have the word of benediction, and I encourage you to reach out and receive the blessing of God for our warfare. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go in the peace and strength of our Lord. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.